take this out of my pocket so it doesn't do that. My name is Amanda Rigby, as Pastor Daniel said, and I am one of the pastors at Edenton Street United Methodist Church up the road in downtown Raleigh. But I did attend Duke Divinity School and lived in Durham for several years, so it's really good to be back this morning. Um, In my other job uh, as not a pastor, I am also the executive director of The Well Mental and Spiritual Care which is a practice of therapy and counseling and spiritual direction. Let's switch mics, yeah, I don't, I'm not touching it, I promise. (laughs) Um, So Pastor Daniel invited me to join you in worship this morning which is a huge gift because I've been a fan of Kindred Church from a distance for several years. Daniel and I uh, met at um, meetings for church planters in the Office of New Faith Communities in our conference. And so I've been hearing about Kindred for years and years and following you guys on Instagram and seeing all of the cool things that you're doing here together as a community. And so I'm a huge fan, so it's an honor to be here with you this morning. As we continue in worship, I would invite you to please pray with me. May I speak, and may we hear, in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I received my first and only speeding ticket in the fall of 2013. And it's funny because that moment has become one of my core memories. I've been thinking a lot about core memories recently, those moments in our lives that stick with us. They come back to us. They shape us and form us into the people that we are now. Ordinarily, it wouldn't have been a huge deal to get a speeding ticket. It happens to the best of us, right? But it was a huge deal because I had spent the entire weekend before that moment absolutely tormenting my sibling, who had gotten a speeding ticket only a few weeks before. You see, in my family, speeding tickets are something of an event. Where I'm from in Texas, when you receive one, the officer brings a very long letter. It's like a huge piece of paper. It's yellow. You can't miss it. It's hideous. And at the very top, in huge, bold, and capitalized letters on every speeding ticket that you get, it says, Dear Violator. It's very dramatic. And so naturally, in my family, the most recent person who received a ticket is referred to frequently and relentlessly as the violator. So a few hours before I received one myself, I had been poking fun at my sibling for being the violator. Not my best moment, to be sure. I had been driving back to my college town, blasting through Mason County, Texas, population 3,943, some of which I think are cows, and I was pulled over by a county sheriff, and I was certain that he would let me go with just a warning. I had never had an infraction before in five years of driving, uh, and I may have used my smile and and maybe some tears (laughs) to try to not get a ticket. However, he returned from his squad car with a long yellow paper, and I knew that I was toast. I knew I was about to become the violator. And I called my parents as soon as I arrived safely back at school, driving 10 miles under the speed limit the whole way. 
And they gave me the we are disappointed in you speech. I wish they had just yelled at me because I felt even worse than I already did. So the next morning I woke up and I wrote a check for the full cost of the ticket, which was $250, by the way, um, and was also the entire contents of my bank account. I was in college, I didn't have any money. And so I drove to the post office and I sent this check to the courthouse in the middle of nowhere where I had been pulled over. Now this is hardly the worst thing I've ever done. I've, I'm positive that I've done much worse things even recently than get a speeding ticket. Maybe it was because I had to eat crow after teasing my sibling all weekend. Uh, Maybe it was because I had just earned $250 for this uh, babysitting job that had been horrible. (laughs) And it was hard earned, $250 that was burning a hole in my otherwise usually very empty pockets. Or maybe it was because I got the disappointed speech from my parents afterward. But whatever the reason, I felt so awful about it for days. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that before where you knew you did something wrong and you just feel the guilt in your body. That was me for days after this moment. Believe it or not, I actually think that that feeling, which is one of the worst, can sometimes be a gift. Feeling guilty for behaving the way we do can sometimes be the grace of God, drawing us closer to the radical forgiveness we find in the heart of God. Being in trouble, as Paul says in Romans 5, produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And hope, he says, doesn't put us to shame because the love of God is being poured out into our hearts constantly. And so in spite of our sin, in spite of the trouble that we make, And in spite of the trouble that comes to us, we can put our hope in God who has proven to us, Paul would say, time and time again, that we will be forgiven, we will be freed. One of the ways I've learned most clearly about that kind of radical forgiveness happened just a few days after I became the violator, which I still am, by the way. I think this is my punishment for having made fun of my sibling, uh, who only was the violator for like three weeks. I've been the violator for a decade. No one else has gotten a speeding ticket, and it's not fair. Anyway, I, uh, a couple days after that happened, went back into my bank account online to make sure that they had received the check and gotten the money, And when I looked, I found that there was still $250 in my bank account. And I started to panic, thinking that maybe they didn't receive my check, and there might be a warrant out for my arrest, and I needed to start packing my things and changing my name and fleeing immediately. But when I looked again, I realized that the money had, in fact, been taken out of my account. And so I kept looking, and I realized that the same day, I had driven to the post office and sent away my hard-earned cash in an envelope. My parents had put $250 back into my bank account. Naturally, I called them immediately, and as soon as my dad answered the phone, he knew why I was calling, and I started to cry, and he patiently waited for me to get myself together long enough to ask him why. And I could hear the smile in his voice when he said, because I love you. As it turns out, forgiveness is rooted in love. It's grounded in our belovedness. 
My parents have taught me that time and time again, as have many other people who have generously given me their forgiveness. This is what I like to refer to as reverse theology. I actually don't know if anybody else calls it that, but I do. And it's also one of the cardinal sins for many theologians, but not me. (laughs) The basic premise of this kind of reverse theology is that God created the whole world, right? We read about that in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis. God created the whole world, and God imbued in everything and everyone goodness. And not only that, Human beings are imbued with this extra special goodness because we have the very image of God, it says, inside of us. And so because of that, because we know that God created the world and because we know that God put goodness in some way, shape, or form in everything and everyone, it stands to reason that if we can find that goodness, if we can locate goodness in the midst of all of the sin and the brokenness and the chaos of our world, then maybe, just maybe, that goodness can tell us something about who God is. We do see reverse theology happen in the Gospels, by the way, when Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our heavenly Father give good things to you, his beloved the imperfect love, but the love nonetheless that we receive from parents or friends or family members can teach us about the perfect love that God has for us. The imperfect forgiveness of people that we love can teach us about God's perfect forgiveness for us. These good things are gifts from God meant to draw us closer into the heart of God. Now, I will admit, the reason why all of these other theologians don't like this kind of theology is that there is risk to it, right? It would be all too easy to misconstrue what is good and to attribute to God something that doesn't actually characterize who God is. We have seen this happen many times throughout human history but I'm willing to stake quite a lot on the understanding of forgiveness uh, that I've learned about by reverse theologizing the forgiveness that I've received from my parents and from so many others to understand God's forgiveness for us. So then, what does it actually mean to be forgiven by God? What does it mean that we have all been made righteous through Christ's blood? that we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, as Paul writes about this morning? And what can we learn about God's forgiveness from the world around us? Well, Paul believed that God's forgiveness transcends any definition or any experience of forgiveness that we might develop as human beings. And we see that in the Romans text for today. He might tell us that human forgiveness can be generous and it can be beautiful, but oftentimes it is limited, it's qualified. There are stipulations with human forgiveness. So here, reverse theology can only get us so far because God's forgiveness is radical. It's generated from this overflow of God's love for us. It's perfectly generous, perhaps even to the extent of being reckless. 
To be completely honest, I can't blame us as human beings for being more careful with our forgiveness than God is. To forgive as God forgives would be to open ourselves up to continual wounding. And yet, Jesus also teaches in that same Sermon on the Mount that we are supposed to be complete in showing love to everyone just as our Heavenly Father does. And so we must also be complete. But other translations say, be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. No pressure. We've totally got this. That's the problem, right? Human forgiveness is less than perfect. Some of the worst advice I've ever received about forgiveness is to forgive and forget. Has anybody ever told you that before? This is a posture which opens us to harm again and again and again. To forgive and forget is a dangerous kind of amnesia. A a kind of disremembering that leaves us exposed and unsafe. And memory, remembering, is an essential part of what it means to be human. Our core memories teach us that. They teach us that forgetting is dangerous because to be remembered is to be formed, to be shaped, to be taught by what has happened to us, by what we've experienced. To remember is to feel grounded and whole and put back together, to literally be remembered. And I don't think that God forgives and forgets because memory is at the core of our faith. One of the primary roles of the church historically has been to steward holy memory, to carry these stories and traditions and practices that help us boast in the hope of God's glory, as Paul says today. And as theologian and author Cole Arthur Riley says, collective memory is a liberation practice. That is the work of the church, to liberate, to free with our collective memory. So we have to remember and we have to do it well. I've come to really understand the importance of memory in my work as a spiritual director. If you're not familiar with spiritual direction, it is a one-on-one relationship between a trained director and a spiritual seeker, which is just someone who's searching for greater depth in their spiritual life. This might be someone who's in a period of transition, someone who's deconstructing their faith, someone who's asking big questions about theology and God and spirituality. We jokingly, uh, in the field, call it Jesus therapy, although we're really clear to say it's not therapy. We are not trained therapists. Um, But it is a really good companion to therapy, and that's exactly why we designed the well, this new practice, uh, with therapists and with spiritual directors. So we have both. We have um, licensed therapists who have trained and studied in their field, and then we have certified spiritual directors who have done the same. These two things go together really well. But what I've learned in journeying more deeply with folks in their spiritual lives is that our memories become the building blocks for our faith. And there are these moments when we are invited to take apart those blocks, to deconstruct and to set them aside. And sometimes the invitation then is to try to rebuild, perhaps in a healthier way, in a different way. And when we do that, what happens is 
we might be left sitting with a couple of extra blocks, extra memories around us that we're not sure what to do with. This process, as I'm sure some of you know, can be really painful, and it can require a lot of forgiveness to other people, to ourselves, and especially to the church. But it can also be incredibly freeing for the soul. Our core memories matter, particularly when it comes to our faith. And in the life of the church, there are actually five core memories that we all share that are called the luminous mysteries, which is just a fancy way of saying these are moments in the life of Jesus that illuminate more of who he is. We, we come to understand Jesus more clearly in these five moments, these five memories that the church is tasked with carrying forward into the world. And the Universal Church actually celebrates one of those luminous mysteries today. Today is what is called Transfiguration Sunday. This moment of memory in the church calendar helps us remember when Jesus takes his friends up to Mount Tabor for a time away together. And while they're there, Jesus transfigures. He transforms, it says, before their very eyes. And his face begins to shine like the sun. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah, these prophetic figures from the Old Testament, are there with them all of a sudden. And they're all there, basking in the glory of Jesus' radiance. The six of them gathered, Jesus, Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah, then hear the voice of God who says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And they do. The disciples and Jesus return down the mountain as Jesus instructs, toward Jerusalem, toward their final meal together, toward arrest and violence and crucifixion, toward death. But before the darkness of death comes this final luminous mystery that we will also celebrate here this morning. Jesus and the disciples come together to share this meal that they have shared together many times before. Every year, around the same time, they gather to celebrate the Passover when God passed over the houses of the Hebrews in Egypt in order to liberate them, to set them free from slavery. And for thousands of years since, Jewish people have been coming together to eat this celebratory meal, to remember the goodness of God. Passover is a practice of memory. And so it's super normal that night. They know exactly what they're doing. They've been doing Passover since they were children. There's a set way to prepare, to eat, and even to speak to one another at this meal. Everything about it is familiar to them. Everything about it is memory. And so when Jesus breaks from the script, when he does something different, the disciples don't exactly know what to do. Jesus diverges from the tradition. He grabs the bread and he breaks it and he says, take this and eat it. This is my body. A little bit later, he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he passes it around to them and he says, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for the whole world for the forgiveness of sins. These words are very familiar to some of us in this room because we hear them over and over and over again every week when we come to the table. They are normal words. We are used to them. These words have become a core memory for us. But in the comfort of that memory, I think sometimes we miss 
something very important about what Jesus does here. You see, what Jesus does and says here is incredibly strange. As is often true of Jesus, the proper response to him in this moment is, what? (laughs) Are you serious? Because Jesus literally tells them, eat my body and drink my blood. I imagine the disciples getting a little freaked out. I know I would. They didn't sign up for cannibalism when they agreed to follow Jesus around. But Jesus isn't talking about cannibalism. He's talking about what will happen a few short hours later when he will be betrayed and arrested, abandoned by all of his friends, imprisoned and tortured, publicly humiliated and killed in the most painful way possible. Jesus is talking to them about his death. And the disciples don't understand They take the bread and they drink the wine and they go about their business, joining Jesus until he's arrested. And then they scatter like flies. They don't understand that Jesus is telling them about this ultimate act of radical love and forgiveness that he's about to do for them. They don't understand that this man, who they followed around for three years, isn't just a man, but he's God in the flesh. He is God's love for us, put on display in human form, as Paul says. They don't understand that he did not just come to die for the righteous, but that he came to teach us. Jesus comes to teach us not how to die, but how to live. And he's killed for it. They don't understand but he's come to show us what a life of forgiveness truly looks like. You know, there are so many theologians who would tell us that we are all the violators. They would tell us that we've all been disobedient to God in ways that have hurt one another and hurt the earth, which is true. We have poured out in front of God this endless ocean of our sin. Waves of hatred and racism and white supremacy, murder, genocide, bigotry, on and on and on. These are the things that separate us from God. These are the ways that we violate the good order that God created us to live in. These are the ways that we ourselves become the ones who betray Jesus. We become Judas. And yet somehow, in spite of all of that, Jesus doesn't call us violators, but he calls us friends. He offers us the bread and the cup and he says, I'm about to be beaten and flogged and killed, crucified and broken for you just like I am breaking this bread. My blood, he says, is about to pour out of my body like wine. And so when you break this bread and when you drink this cup, I want you to remember why it is that I'm about to suffer so much, Jesus says. I want you to remember why. When we come to the foot of the cross and we look up at Jesus, perfect Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, who is suffering and dying for all of us who are less than righteous. When we look up at him and we ask, why? The answer is, because I love you. Because I love you. And it is in that love that you and I can truly come to know forgiveness. We can 
come to truly know freedom for our souls. Because to live lives of unforgiveness is to move as far away from God, as far away from the heart of God as we possibly can. That kind of life is itself the punishment. Common Buddhist wisdom teaches that holding on to unforgiving resentment in the face of wrongdoing is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will die. There are literal medical studies that tell us that holding a grudge is bad for our health. It actually makes our physical health worse. In other words, forgiveness is essential and unforgiveness is its very own kind of hell. All we need to do to understand that is to take a look around at our world. And so the invitation for us today is to figure out how to become people of forgiveness. I don't imagine that it will be easy because we're human and our forgiveness is imperfect. To accept this invitation would be to live in a way that is incredibly countercultural. We've lost the sense of what forgiveness means in our world. And yet this invitation is the call from Jesus today. This is the good news for us. And so the work now is to make this place, to make Kindred a laboratory of forgiveness, an epicenter of grace in this world that so desperately needs us, the church, to set aside our unforgiving ways and to become people who heap grace upon grace on one another in the way of Jesus so that we might all be free. Let us pray. Almighty God, we have so much to be grateful for. We thank you for your son, for the ultimate act of radical love displayed for us on the cross. God, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember that love, the love of Jesus, every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So that communion is not just something that we do, but so that communion might become our very way of life in which you offer to us that radical love. And we in turn offer that love to other people. Give us the strength and the courage to be people of communion, people of unity, people of divine forgiveness in a world that desperately needs it. Help us not to just forgive and forget, but to forgive and remember. And in doing so, may we remember to follow the recklessly forgiving way of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.